What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. Believe me, if I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. <laughs> Hello friends and enemies, hello and welcome to another episode of Exploring Evil. As always, I'm your host Jay, and I bring you stories of lesser-known serial killers, occult murderers, and murderers with a paranormal twist. Speaking of paranormal, I want you to check out my other podcast. It's called Cryptique, C-R-Y-P-T-I-Q-U-E. And my co-host Ryan and I discuss forbidden knowledge, the paranormal, hidden history, and stories of the occult. We just did an episode on the real-life Black Mirror in the haunted Island of the Dolls. You can find it everywhere you find Exploring Evil. And if you want to start a podcast but have concerns over the production, shoot me an email to find out how I can help. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a 5-star rating if you enjoy the show. If you have case suggestions or comments, you can email me at exploringevil at gmail.com. I want to send a shout out to Justin Cotton of Kansas City, who says he listens to Exploring Evil and Cryptique. So try to be more like Justin. Thanks. Imagine. You're walking out on the streets of downtown Salt Lake City, under the International Dunes Hotel, where a crowd starts to gather. You walk out onto the sidewalk and look up as the crowd screams, No. Stop. As you start to look up, you see a body hit the canopy just to your left and smash through to the pavement. You glance back up in time to see another body get crushed by the cement sidewalk. There's a woman on the 11th floor balcony, and she's literally throwing her children to the concrete below. The crowd continues to scream in terror and takes cover to avoid the fallen children. A little one has a death grip on the railing overlooking the street, but the woman pries her fingers off the railing and tosses her out like a bag of garbage. Sirens begin to wail in the distance as the woman pushes four folding chairs to the edge of the railing. Four more children take the leap simultaneously, and the bodies of dead children litter the street. Then, the woman, the monster, steps over the railing overlooking the crowd. She stands there on the brink of eternity and ponders. By now the crowd had started chanting, jump bitch jump, jump bitch jump. What are you yelling? This is the case of the cult of the family of David and this is Exploring Evil. On November 9, 1938, Charles Bruce Longo was born in Yonkers, New York, to a well-to-do doctor. Charles's mother was an Episcopalian, and his father was a Catholic, religions he would eventually turn away from as he ventured out into the world. His parents went on to give Charles a little brother whom they named Dean. Dean's path would be far different from his older brother, who now went by the name Bruce. A childhood neighbor described Bruce as handsome and, though not athletic, was fun and outgoing. 
But Bruce's own mother portrayed him as egotistical and that he thought he was better than others because his dad was a doctor. Bruce went on to graduate Gorton High School in 1955 and soon enlisted in the Marine Corps. While serving in the Marines, Bruce befriended members of the LDS Church and attended services with them. In 1958, back in Yonkers, Bruce was officially baptized and became a member of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Joseph Smith formally organized the church as the Church of Christ on April 6, 1830 in western New York. Smith later changed the name to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints after he stated he had received a revelation to do so. Initial converts were drawn to the church in part because of the newly published Book of Mormon, a self-described chronicle of indigenous American prophets that Smith said he had translated from golden plates. Contrary to popular belief, the LDS does not allow polygamy. The church does, however, forbid the use of alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, and any unprescribed drugs. Some describe the church as a cult in and of itself, but my local library has most religious texts filed under mythology, and most religions have non-believers that describe them as cults. Bruce served in the church's version of the Boy Scouts and was described as having great influence on the younger members of the group. The LDS believes in missions, where young people are called to spread the word of the LDS. In 1960, Bruce felt called to serve a two-year-long mission in Uruguay, which he paid for out of his own pocket. While on this mission, cracks in Bruce's psyche began to show, and some believe mental illness began to develop. Bruce stated he was hearing voices he believed to be God himself, calling him to be an apostle. Bruce memorized the Book of Mormon, which the LDS describes as new scriptures from heaven above. Bruce was known on this mission for, quote, never sleeping. Just shy of a year into Bruce's mission, he had somehow contracted hepatitis and continued to hear voices, so he was sent home for treatment. According to the current Health Sciences Journal, psychosis can rarely be a symptom of chronic hepatitis C, and more common psychiatric symptoms include depression and anxiety. It's rare that missionaries are sent home before their completion of the mission, but in Bruce's case, it was found to be absolutely necessary. Bruce was sent to the hospital for psychiatric evaluation, but continued to have visions and hear voices, but I couldn't find any official diagnosis. Bruce was considered a religious zealot, though. I'm sure you know this, but just in case, a zealot is defined as a person who is fanatical and uncompromising in pursuit of their religious or other beliefs. So much so, in fact, that Bruce baptized a nurse and doctor who were treating him in the hospital. Upon his release, he headed straight to Brigham Young University, which is owned and operated by the Mormon LDS Church. LDS students frequently find their eternal companion, as they say, but it's a fancy name for husband or wife. Bruce majored in Spanish, of all things, perhaps in preparation for another mission to South America. Bruce minored in political science. It's at BYU where he met and became enamored with a young Swedish student named Margit Brigida Eriksson. She was born on November 4, 1939 in Sweden and was converted to the church at the age of 18. Margit was characterized as soft-spoken, naive, 
and easily manipulated. Bruce told Margit's roommate that he had a revelation from God that the two should be wed. She soon dropped out of school, and the two were married in December of 1961. Here's a pro tip, ladies. Don't date, or heaven forbid, marry any man that wants you to drop out of school. It often doesn't end well. Bruce and Margit had two children by the time he graduated in 1965 and soon moved from Provo to Salt Lake City. And within a few years, Bruce said that he had another vision, heard another voice, or as he put it, had a revelation. I'm certainly no expert, but this revelation was one that would, in the end, spell doom for most of Bruce's family. Bruce believed, or so he said, that he was to be the next prophet of the church. Now, I do believe in God, but I suggest being weary of anyone who claims to be a prophet of any God. Through research, I learned that the LDS Church always has a standing prophet, similar to a pope, who receives commandments, prophecies, and revelations from God. Allegedly. His responsibility is to make known God's will and true character to mankind and to show the meaning of his dealings with them. In 1970, the standing prophet of the LDS Church, David O. McKay, passed away. Bruce was sure he was going to be named as the new prophet and was severely depressed when that role was handed to Joseph Fielding Smith. Bruce, who had been in contact with church officials during this time, claimed to be God, the Holy Ghost, or the Messiah, and demanded all tithes from the members be paid to him. The LDS Church promptly excommunicated Bruce for apostasy or the renunciation or abandonment of church teachings. Always loyal, Margit too was excommunicated from the church. Bruce began to grow his hair and beard out. Is it just me or do a majority of cult leaders have ZZ Top beards? Weird coincidence, I guess. In true cult fashion, Bruce changed his name to Emmanuel David and Margit was renamed Rachel, Two well-known biblical names. I guess Bruce just didn't have the same pizzazz as Emmanuel David. And so it was that the family took shape with Emmanuel or Bruce as the leader and Rachel as the loyal subject. And the cult began to grow slowly but surely with about 13 or so followers. Many of the followers were family members and friends who had also been excommunicated. All took the surname David. Emmanuel, to his followers, was the Messiah, and that's how he was referred to in the cult. Emmanuel also referred to himself, probably in the third person, as God, Jesus, and the Holy Ghost in one neat, tidy little package. He was described as sincere, and outsiders thought he truly believed what he was telling his followers, a condition I would refer to as grandiose delusions. Disturbingly, he carried a large sword with him at all times, which he referred to as his holy weapon. I would argue that it was a tool of intimidation which discouraged others from defying him. The sword had inscriptions with David and a star of David on one side and holiness to the Lord inscribed on the other. The family of David pulled up stakes and moved to the town of Manti, Utah, where the charismatic cult leader persuaded prominent Manti individuals to donate to his cult. David and his followers opened up a knife-crafting shop in Manti to help support themselves. 
Research shows that the group also began scamming citizens to donate to the cult by way of fabricating family emergencies. Enough so that the FBI began investigating the cult for wire fraud transfers. By 1971, the family of David left Manti, favoring instead hotel hopping across the western states. They became notorious for unpaid hotel bills they left behind with each stop. By 1977, the cult came full circle back to Salt Lake City. They began staying at the Posh International Dunes Hotel in downtown Salt Lake City. The Davids had been busy, not just with cult activities, but with expanding their own biological family. They managed to have seven children, but going against true cult fashion, the children were all Emmanuels and Rachels together although ex-cult members accused Emmanuel of trying to separate wives and husbands. As we know, most cult leaders like to spread their offspring amongst many women. The children, as expected, had all been endowed with biblical names. Rachel, Elizabeth, Joshua, Deborah, Joseph, David, and Rebecca. But they were lucky enough to have given names as well. Marcy, Eva, Frank, Anthony, and Charles Bruce. And, of course, Rachel. Deborah and Rebecca's given names were the same as their biblical names. Of course, they all had the surname of David. I don't know about you, but David David seems like a raw deal as far as names go. They were all homeschooled by their mother, Rachel, and had never been to a public or private school, for that matter. Rachel taught them reading, art, math, and Bible study. Note that there were no history or science lessons. That might have interfered with their brainwashing. Clean, neat, literate, and well-behaved were all adjectives used to paint the picture of these beautiful young souls. They wore pale skin to a letter, probably because they never had the opportunity to play outside like normal kids. Some kids still play outside, right? The boys, like Emmanuel, wore their hair long in braids, and the girls, of course, sported long hair as well. Although the fancy hotels they inhabited no doubt had swimming pools, the children were not allowed to go swimming. Emmanuel reportedly believed the devil had considerable influence in the water, so swimming was forbidden. No doubt the David children were sheltered to a fault and were only allowed to speak to others with Emmanuel's blessing. They weren't even allowed to be in the room when the maids were cleaning. Hey friends and enemies, I hope you're enjoying tonight's episode. Before it gets really dark, I want to invite you to check out my other podcast. It's called Cryptique, and it's a discussion-based show on topics like the black-eyed kids, reincarnation, feral children, and the alien event in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. We just did a show on the real-life Black Mirror, an Aztec obsidian mirror used to conjure spirits by an advisor to the Queen of England. There's really something for everyone, so turn off the lights, light a candle, and find your favorite episode everywhere you find Exploring Evil. And now back to Exploring Evil. Hotel manager Jim Bradley 
recalled the International Dunes hotel suite they lived in cost $90 a day, and it was paid daily with cash by a manual with a crisp $100 bill. In today's money, that would be around $400 a night. I don't remember any stories of Jesus staying anywhere quite so extravagant, but I haven't read the Book of Mormon, so who knows. On a side note, it's always seemed strange to me that religions build these enormous, decadent churches instead of having a low-key, simple place of worship and spending that extra money to feed the poor or house the homeless. But nothing was too good for God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Emmanuel was an imposing figure at six foot four and 300 pounds, and with such size comes an enormous appetite. They would order food from expensive restaurants in the area. It was figured that the Davids needed about $300 a day to maintain their lifestyle. That's equivalent to about $1,200 in today's money, or about $438,000 a year. I guess that political science minor taught him how politicians like to live preaching about the excess fuel use of the average person while flying their private jets around. But I digress. Emmanuel did not work, and hadn't since 1965, except for an odd job from time to time. The family of David was being funded from the blood, sweat, and tears of its members. And their scams. Some of David's cult members sold their homes and belongings to fund the David's lavish lifestyle. No word on if they knew just how high on the hog the Davids were living, but I guess if Christ asks you to sell your home and give him the money, that's what you do. Prospective members would pay for the privilege of belonging to this cult as well, with one such woman donating $25,000 to the Davids. Again, in today's money, that's about $100,000. One disciple of Emmanuel's was a former member of the esteemed Mormon Tabernacle Choir. This follower of Christ took it upon himself to con some of his choir mates out of money that of course went straight to the Davids. For his effort he was convicted of wire fraud and spent five years in prison. He used the fictional story of a paralyzed nine-year-old girl who had unpaid medical bills as the con. He pleaded guilty to the charges, but in later years he denied being involved in any illegal activities. I wonder how the real Jesus would feel about using the plight of the sick as a way to scam money. The family of David seemed to be more about fraud and scheming than doing the work of God. In one of Emmanuel's failed prophecies, he said that California would fall into the ocean and Salt Lake City would be consumed by fire. Needless to say, police and Mormon church security officers kept a watchful eye when Emmanuel David showed up with his followers at the Temple Square in Salt Lake City, which happened often, but there was never any violence. In 1971, Emmanuel David and his followers began to travel to Nebraska, Washington, and Montana. Sterling Peacock, who had changed his name to Matthias David, and Paul Chipman, who was then Jonathan David, came to Spokane in 1974 and opened a karate studio. They began sending the profits to support Emmanuel David, his wife, and their seven children. From June 1975 to January 1976, Emmanuel David lived in the Red Lion Inn in Missoula while his followers worked elsewhere. Then he had a vision. 
He decided Matthias and Jonathan and Peter David were really archangels, and he renamed them Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel, ex-followers said. Emmanuel David believed the federal government was about to collapse. He promised to save the republic and become its new leader. He told his archangels to sell their karate studio in Spokane and go to Washington, D.C. to await the government's collapse. He left behind an unpaid $6,000 hotel bill in Missoula and returned to Utah. He gave each of his three followers a few hundred dollars and told them to stay in Washington, D.C. But the archangels quickly ran out of money and became homeless, sleeping on the sidewalk. Their faith in Emmanuel David, however, was undiminished. They called him collect every day as he stayed at $100 a day hotel suites with his family. Jacob David returned to his native Scandinavia, where he worked as a carpenter and roofer. He said he never lost faith in Emmanuel David. He sent regular tithing checks. Finally, after about a year, Emmanuel David ordered his three archangels to return to Salt Lake City, where he said he had obtained the original tablets given to Mormon Church founder Joseph Smith. When we got back to Salt Lake City, of course, he didn't have the tablets, recalls ex-member Paul Chipman, who was then known as Jonathan David. He said he was the tablets. Matthias David grew tired of his archangel assignment in Washington, D.C. and got a job there in a lumberyard. He earned enough money to buy a motorcycle and rode it to Albuquerque, where he opened another karate studio. Takes a lot of con games to live the way the Davids were living. Nevertheless, the lengthy prison sentence of Emmanuel's follower would play a key role in the downward spiral of the David family. To quote an 80s one-hit wonder, Emmanuel was the cult of personality. His wife probably believed he was God. Why else would she have committed those atrocious acts on the 11th floor balcony on that fateful day? Emmanuel's sister-in-law said that Rachel followed her husband around like a puppy dog. But Emmanuel had friends outside of his cult that contributed to his debauchery as well. They loaned Emmanuel money, or rather gave him money, as he had no intentions of repaying anyone. One of these men, embarrassed of his association with Emmanuel, had served on Emmanuel's mission to Uruguay. He felt ashamed of loaning Emmanuel money and believed Emmanuel would be able to repay his debt based on the Emmanuel's living such a good life. And somehow, some way, this man-god, Christ incarnate, with all of his money at his disposal, didn't own a car, or even a donkey. On July 31, 1978, Emmanuel went to this man's work and frantically asked to borrow his truck. Without question, the man gave him the keys, and Emmanuel drove off into oblivion. But the FBI was closing their net on Emmanuel, and he found out on July 31st that he was about to be indicted for wire fraud and tax evasion. Undoubtedly, Emmanuel feared the five years of prison time his follower got for his scam, and God only knows how far the tentacles of Emmanuel's scams reached. Surely, he thought prison was beneath him. He may have been more afraid of the shame and embarrassment of being outed as a low-life scammer to his followers. Emmanuel soon found himself at Pinecrest Canyon, an outdoor hiking and recreation park that was a hop, skip, and a jump east of Salt Lake City. While Jesus was executed on a cross, Emmanuel committed suicide in a truck. 
Emmanuel ran a hose from the exhaust of the truck into the cab and filled the surrounding window with towels. No word on if they were hotel towels, but the hose was probably borrowed as well. Most of today's trucks have fairly low emissions compared to those of the 70s, and it probably didn't take too long for him to be overcome by the fumes. On August 1st, a hiker found the dead body of Emmanuel David in the passenger seat of the borrowed pickup at Pinecrest Canyon. Early the next day, officers had the extremely difficult task of informing Rachel of her husband's apparent suicide. The officers noted that she didn't seem surprised. She was, however, described as worried and upset. Officers reported that Rachel told them Emmanuel was depressed and had, quote, a better place to go to, indicating she most likely still believed he was God. She also brought up the fact that she had no way to pay for his funeral. You see, Emmanuel handled all of the finances, and Rachel had no access to any funds, fraudulent or otherwise. She was so dazzled by Emmanuel that she may not have known anything about the scams and loans Emmanuel was entangled in. She begged the hotel manager to work with her until she figured out her finances. The deli manager said Rachel asked him about the possibility of getting her kids enrolled in school. These were good signs, signs that she was trying to prepare for the present and the future. But the odds must have felt insurmountable. Surely the deck was stacked against them as Emmanuel left his beloved family holding the proverbial bag. It's hard to speculate what discussions went on overnight in room 1105 of the International Dunes Hotel that night. Maybe she reiterated that the children's father was God. Keep in mind, they had been raised to believe that their whole lives. Maybe she told them that she was going to take them to paradise. The hotel manager Rachel had spoken to about help with their finances was at the front desk of the hotel on August 3, 1978. Bradley's wife and co-manager walked over to him and, trying not to alarm anyone, said, Jim, they're jumping from the balcony. The pair walked out of the large glass doors where a crowd had huddled, faces turned skyward. He saw the woman he knew as Rachel David walk her children to the railing. This couldn't be happening, but it was. The crowd was panic-stricken and horrified as onlookers screamed, Stop! No! First, Rachel tossed eight-year-old Joseph over the railing. Then, seven-year-old David immediately after. Then, she had to pry six-year-old Rebecca's hands off of her shirt, and then the railing, as she was desperately holding on. Then, she dropped Rebecca to her death. She calmly pushed four folding chairs to the edge of the balcony and stepped back as Elizabeth, Joshua, Deborah, and Rachel, the daughter, stepped up on the folding chairs. The crowd's pleas to stop fell upon deaf ears and the children stepped off the folding chairs, plunging to their deaths. Well, all except for Rachel, the daughter. But at the time, she was presumed dead and the crowd had turned. As the mother, Rachel, slipped her legs over the edge of the railing, the crowd began to chant in unison, Jump, bitch, jump. Jump, bitch, jump. After pondering her decision, she did indeed jump to her death as well. 
None of the children made a sound as they plummeted off the balcony. Some of the David family members landed on a canopy roof of the hotel coffee shop nine stories below, then onto the sidewalk. Three fell the entire 11 stories onto the sidewalk. One of the boys ended up in the gutter. Autopsies on the victims revealed that they all sustained fractures of the legs, ankles, or pelvis, indicating that they went down feet first. An autopsy on Rebecca confirmed the eyewitness accounts as she had bruising on her fingers and broken nails. There were no suicide notes. The family was taken to a local hospital and all but 15-year-old Rachel were pronounced dead. The doctors originally thought it was Elizabeth, but it was later discovered that it was indeed Rachel. She was rushed into the trauma unit at LDS Hospital. She was in a coma, and she was barely clinging to life. She immediately went into surgery, where she underwent a massive blood transfusion. It took Rachel a week to stabilize, but she remained unconscious. In two weeks, she had improved from critical to serious, but was still in a coma. The conditions are defined by MedStar Health as critical but stable. The patient has vital signs that are unstable and not within normal limits, and they may be unconscious. Indicators are unfavorable, meaning they're closer to death than they are to living. Serious. Patient vital signs may be unstable and not within normal limits. Patient is acutely ill. Indicators are questionable, meaning it's kind of a 50-50 if you're going to live or die. But it was an improvement, and doctors believed she was regaining consciousness. She would have to undergo multiple surgeries to repair the damage from the fall, but she did eventually regain consciousness. Think you've had a rough life? Imagine what this child went through. Since her release, Rachel David has mostly stayed out of the spotlight. She may have stayed in foster care for a while, but she is reported to have lived with some of the remaining cult members of the Cult of David. She lived with her uncle Jacob David and reportedly told him that she doesn't remember what happened that day. But she believes her father will return someday as God because he, quote, never lied to me, she told Inside Edition in 1993. The sad part for Rachel is that she still believes her father is God. This life is all she ever knew. Now, she has nothing. Imagine if you truly believed you could be with your family in paradise right now, and they were literally your entire world. And you took that leap of faith, and instead of paradise, you got hell. Denied by heaven and sentenced to a long life full of strangers and confined to a wheelchair. Rachel has reportedly tried to kill herself several times. She is now in a long-term care facility in Idaho. She suffers with brain damage and is still in a wheelchair. She's 58 years old. So if you pray to whomever you pray to, say a prayer tonight for Rachel. Two of the children wrote a note. Dear Daddy and Mama, we hope the temple goes. We hope we get some watches soon. We hope to go to Hotel Utah sooner than the soonest. We hope California is destroyed. Love, Joseph and David. <laughs> Friends and enemies, that's all I've got on the tragic deaths of the family of David. I hope you all enjoyed tonight's episode. 
If you haven't already, subscribe to Exploring Evil on your favorite podcast platform. Rate the show, leave a review, and tell all of your friends and enemies about Exploring Evil. Also check in on my other podcast, Cryptique, for stories of the paranormal and a wide range of interesting subjects like Feral Children and Shanti Devi, the girl who lived twice. You can find it everywhere you find Exploring Evil. A special thanks goes out to Justin Cotton for supporting Exploring Evil and Cryptique. Good night, friends and enemies.